Welcome to a new episode of Let's Accelerate. My name is Manuel and together with my colleague Luisa, we are very happy to welcome the guest of today's episode, Charles O'Reilly. Charles is Professor of Management at Stanford Graduate School of Business and co-founder of ChangeLogic, a Boston-based consulting firm. He's also the co-author of several much-acclaimed books, such as Lead and Disrupt and Corporate Explorer. We are extremely happy and honored to have one of the godfathers of ambidexterity, Charles O'Reilly with us today, sharing his knowledge and experience about ambidextrous organizations. Welcome, Charles. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Charles, we've had the pleasure of meeting you in person and having you as a speaker at our event Corporate Startup Fusion earlier this year. Uh, in your presentation, you mentioned that you're kind of unpopular with your MBA students as a lot of uh, a lot of them um, start their own business after their MBA, starting um, working at startups and, and are founders. And uh, your claim is that big companies ought to be more innovative than small ones and so um, also more innovative than startups. Can you please uh, let us know why do you think big companies ought to be more innovative? Sure. So uh, about 30% of our MBAs every year <clears throat> of the graduating class either found companies or they go to work for startups. Uh, but, you know, I've spent my career actually working mostly with big companies. And my experience is big companies have more resources. They can run more experiments. Uh, they have people that typically have deeper experience. They have closer contact with customers. So at least theoretically, I think big companies ought to be more innovative than small. Small company can run one experiment. If they're lucky, they might pivot and try a second one. But big companies can run multiple experiments. So in, in principle, I think big companies ought to be more innovative than, than small companies. Now, I, I have to say that uh, this, is, this runs counter to uh, what many of our students think. But there are students who really are interested in becoming entrepreneurs within large organizations. That is, they, they want to go to work for, for large companies for a variety of good reasons, but they also want to be entrepreneurial. So I think, I think uh, what we've seen with Bosch and uh, some of the other companies is uh, providing opportunities for their employees to be entrepreneurial. <laughs> and, and still, um, there there is kind of the notion that that a lot of big companies fail. You get you give a lot of um, examples in in your books, so Lean Disrupt and also yeah. in Corporate Explorer. Um, wh why is that then the reason that even given those more resources and um, more, more, can more run more experience and so on, um, why is it still the case that a lot of big companies fail in the face of uh, disruption? Yeah. So so to step back just a little bit, you know, we, we understand why we as humans get old and die. There, there's something called cell senescence. Our cells can only replicate accurately so many times. And, you know, after a while, you know, your hair turns white and you get a bad back. And, you know, so but, but that's not true of organizations. I mean, there, there's no reason why an organization, a successful organization, shouldn't be able to go to from success to success. But of course, the evidence is that that typically does not happen. So, so why why is it that big companies, especially successful companies, often find themselves in trouble? 
There's, there's something which we have labeled, for lack of a better term, the success syndrome. And what happens is big companies, when they are successful, they get bigger. They put in systems and processes and structures, now, not because they like bureaucracy, but because that's where the learning is embedded. But as they do that, and they put in more structures and processes, that builds in inertia. And so what you find is as big companies become successful and bigger, they tend to focus more and more on short-term and incremental improvements. And they are less willing oftentimes, not able, but less willing to run the experiments, the disruptive experiments. So, so I think one of the reasons that, that we see big companies, uh, successful companies being less innovative is they get trapped into sort of focusing on today's customers and today's business models. I think one of the things that has exacerbated this in the past 20 years is that the pace of change is really increasing. You know, at, at one level, that's kind of a cliche. People talk about the pace of change. But if you look at the data, it's actually true. The, the penetration of new technologies, the internet, mobility, artificial intelligence, machine learning, that, that is happening faster now than it ever has historically. And so we have this sort of um, perfect storm in a way. We've got big successful companies that are focused on incremental improvement. Meanwhile, the pace of change is increasing. And so I think that's why we see many big successful companies running into trouble. So Manuel already mentioned two of your recent books. And if we take yeah. a deeper look at the two of them, what would you say has changed since Lead and Disrupt? So if we draw a timeline from Lead and Disrupt to Corporate Explorer, what are your yeah. new learnings? Yeah. So uh, the first edition of Lead and Disrupt was published in 2016. And based on that, we had the opportunity, Mike and I had the opportunity to, to spend time with companies in Europe and Japan. And two things became clear to us. One was that culture uh, or corporate culture is uh, potentially a competitive advantage, but it can really be a competitive disadvantage. And so one of the things that we noted was that the, the culture of these organizations that, by the way, that helped them be successful, oftentimes was exactly the wrong culture to move into new areas. So a culture that emphasizes attention to detail and quality and incremental improvement, compliance with uh, with rules and regulations, you know, what in Japan is referred to as manozokuri, that, that is the, the, the getting better and better and better. That, that culture, which makes them successful in one business, really stops them from experimenting. So the issue of culture was one thing that we realized that we had not paid enough attention to. And so in the second edition, we, we paid a lot more attention to that. The second thing that happened was that as we talked to leaders around the world and we talked about innovation, it became clear to us that they, they were not thinking very analytically about innovation. They were all very positive about innovation, but often it was incremental innovation. It was new products, new services, things, things like that. You know, it became very clear to us, we were in Japan talking to a big electronics company that I think everybody would recognize. And they had spent 
four years investing in design thinking, which is a great methodology for generating new ideas. I think you all know about that and are good at it. This company had developed more than 400 potential ideas for new products and businesses. But when I pressed them, it turns out they'd only managed to really experiment with two. That is, they were very good at ideation. They were very good at coming up with ideas. And we have great methodologies for that. We've got open innovation. We've got design thinking. You know, we've got corporate venture capital. There are lots of ways that companies can, can come up with new ideas. That is insufficient. It turns out the second discipline is incubation. And that is, do we have a rigorous way of deciding which of all these great, potentially great ideas, which of them customers might like and be willing to pay for and might grow into a sustainable business? This is incubation. Again, again, you at Bosch know this better than we do. You know, this is business model canvas, lean uh, startup, uh, great methodologies. We, we were in Germany big German automobile manufacturer, great at ideation, great at incubation. They had facilities in Berlin and Munich, and they were running all sorts of interesting experiments. They were not very good at scaling. That, that is, the third discipline is, and it, and it needs to be a discipline, is do you have a rigorous way of ensuring that as these businesses begin to take off, they get the resources, the people, the money, the access to customers needed to grow. And that's where the problem really emerges, because often this means taking resources away from existing businesses, profitable businesses, and using those resources in newer businesses, which sometimes have lower margins and may even cannibalize the existing business. So the second big insight was we needed to be much more <clears throat> explicit about <clears throat> these three disciplines and the importance of each of these disciplines. As we did that, it became clear to us that there were individuals within organizations that were driving innovation. And as you've already spoken to my friend and colleague, Andy Bims, you know, Andy is the lead author on the book Corporate Explorer, and Corporate Explorer really tells the story from a bottoms-up perspective. Lead and Disrupt is, is fundamentally a story about how leaders can design organizations to encourage experimentation and grow new business. It's a top-down. Corporate Explorer takes the perspective of individuals in organizations who are being entrepreneurial, and what is it that they have to do or can do to be successful to grow new businesses? So that's the difference between the two books. Mm -hmm. and, and and when we when we dwell on this a little longer, so coming top down, what what can an organization? How can it instill an environment in which core and beyond innovation initiatives are managed in parallel? So the the ambidextrous yeah. challenge, if you want, so that in 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 an environment where individuals, like you describe in Corporate Explorer, can 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 flourish and come up with their ideas and be successful with their ideas. Well, this is the part that's been the most fun and rewarding for us, I think. Because we've had a chance to spend time with lots of different organizations around the world as they as they tried to do this. And we've documented how 
many of them have done it successfully. The first thing I would say about, about this is it, it is at heart a leadership issue. <clears throat> it's not a technology issue. It's not a, an organizational design issue. Unless the senior managers are really prepared to uh, support and invest in these new uh, ventures, uh, it won't happen. We've seen companies that started down a path of generating new businesses, but for you know many different reasons. Oftentimes what happens is the, the senior leaders, either they get distracted or the, the pressures on the business and they pull back on the investment in, in the future. So in, in the, the, the first issue is unless senior leaders are really committed to this, our experience is that it won't work. The second thing that I think is is important is that there has to be some strategy that is compelling about why we're in different businesses. Why are we in why are we in our old business and our new business? Let me let me give you one example. One of the companies that we've written about in Japan is a company called AGC. It's called Asahi Glass Company. They are the world's largest maker of architectural and automotive glass. That is a commodity business. And they are being pressured at the low end from competitors from China. Their CEO, this is five years ago, their CEO came in and said, we are going to be a materials company. We are going to leverage our capabilities in, in chemistry and materials. And we are going to move and we're going to stay in the glass business. We're going to make as much money as we can from the glass business, but we're going to take assets and capabilities and we're going to invest in electronics, mobility, and life sciences. I saw a, an analyst report uh, a month ago. They, they, AGC, are now being talked about as moving from a value company to a growth company. They are, they are, they are shifting rapidly to become a materials company. So there has to be a, an overarching strategy for that legitimates being in these different businesses. The third thing I think that is true of the successful examples is these businesses have to run separately, that the alignments of a core or mature business, the types of people, the skill sets, the metrics, the processes, the culture, that's different from these new exploratory businesses. Uh, and so the, these businesses have to be able to run separately. The fourth thing that has to happen in our experience is they, there has to be this discipline process to make sure that they get the resources they need to, as they begin to scale. And the last thing uh, I guess that I would say is that the, the leadership has to be committed over not a two or three year period, but over a five to seven year period. You know, I, I live in Silicon Valley. You know, when venture capitalists make investments, they're, they're making it on a five to seven to 10 year basis. They don't expect great returns in two or three years. And oftentimes what we see in big companies is people want returns in two or three years. That often doesn't happen. So there has to be a commitment for the long term. So sorry, that's a long winded way of saying <laughs> th th these are the five things I think that it takes uh, to be successful at ambidexterity.
and now um if you if you would if you would judge t- today's top management of big corporates um how aware are they of this concept and and this teachings and learnings you have described in your books and just laid out so the ambidextrous um, organization how aware are they nowadays compared to let's say 10 years ago yeah so the good news i think is that there is much more awareness there's been as you know there's been a lot of research on the topic and some of that research has actually become useful to to organizations The bad news, I think, with Steve Blank, who is the the really the godfather of the lean startup, puts it nicely. He says he says many big organizations engage in innovation theater. That is, they're aware of the concept, they talk about it, they may even put a little resource in resources into it, but they're not they're not really serious about it. My, my experience in the last three or four years is that the Japanese companies are much more serious about this than many American companies. That is, Japanese companies are tend to think longer term than American companies. Uh, Lead and Disrupt has sold more than 100,000 copies in Japan. Uh, it's, um, you know, lots of companies are, are implementing this in Japan. The Japanese government has actually built it into some of their administrative guidance for companies. So, so I think there is, I think there is much more awareness of the concept. Uh, and I think some companies, especially in Japan are, are taking it very seriously. So, so I think we're already coming back to the topic of culture so what do you think what role does culture play in becoming an ambidextrous organization you know you know ben horowitz is the managing partner of andreessen horowitz which is maybe one of the preeminent venture capital firms in silicon valley and ben has written a couple books um, really good books Uh, the hard thing about hard things is a book i could recommend to people And, you know, Ben says that there are lots of bankrupt companies with great cultures. And I I agree with that. And what he means by that is that the culture that makes a company successful in one in a mature business is not necessarily the culture that will help them move into new businesses. And so what we often see are, especially when we see great companies running into trouble, It's the culture that's become part of the problem. It's a, what we refer to in Corporate Explorer as one of the silent killers of exploration. That is the culture itself, because it is often not very explicit or as easily managed as metrics or incentives or structures, the culture itself holds the company hostage to the past. What's, what's really needed if you're going to run an exploratory business, it's a very different type of culture. If you, if you think about a startup company and what, what their culture is, it's a culture about initiative and flexibility and resilience and, and experimenting and failing and trying again. Th- those are not things that typically big companies uh, value. In fact, you know, the su- a successful career in a big company Is built on success after success after success. It's not built on trying things and failing and then trying things and failing. 
So, so the culture, I think the, the culture is one of the big silent killers. And if companies are going to be successful at ambidexterity, then I think their leaders have to be much more explicit about both understanding culture and also managing culture and permitting different cultures in different parts of the organizations. And, uh, you know, I think part of the challenge there is many managers don't have a very clear way of thinking about culture. They acknowledge that it's important, but they really don't know how to manage it. And unless they can be explicit about it, I think the risk is that the the dominant culture will kill the, the exploratory culture. Yeah, yeah. You, you you just mentioned the topics, metrics, and culture. So for me, that begs the question: So is there a way to measure a culture? So how do you realize that a company has truly implement, implemented mm -hmm. an innova innovation culture? Are there some kind of KPIs, or how can you measure <clears throat> a culture? Yeah. So there are ways. There are ways of measuring it. There are a number of uh, instruments that are available for for uh, assessing culture some of them i think are not very good but but others are okay let, let me give you a uh, a good example of a successful culture change effort uh, i think some of your listeners might be familiar with what's happened at microsoft over the last five years you know in 2014 Satya nadella took over um, microsoft He took over from Steve Ballmer. At the time, the culture at Microsoft was individualistic, competitive, aggressive, you know, did not tolerate failure. And the company, the Microsoft at the time, was really under existential threat. Their main businesses were being threatened by the cloud and by, you know, uh, companies like Google and Amazon. And Nadella, over the last five years, has really changed, along with his chief people officer, Kathleen Hogan, has really changed the, the culture. And if you do a deep dive into how he did it, what you see that he did a couple things that I think <clears throat> are effective at managing culture. First of all, he, he, uh, he sent very clear signals about what the new culture needed to be. Not vague, he talked about growth mindset, but not vague, but a set of behaviors that he wanted in the organization. And then they cascaded that. They trained more than 27,000 managers on what the new culture was, and they drove it into the organization. They changed the incentive system. They changed the stack ranking and performance management system. They did a bunch of things to 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 drive the culture. And to your question, Louisa, how did they measure it? They actually do pulse checks where they, every month, they cert, they ask a, set, a subset of employees a set of questions around the culture, and then they monitor those questions, both for sentiment, how they're feeling, but also the substance of it. So I think, I think it can be measured. Uh, another big culture change, successful culture change effort, was big U.S. airline a number of years ago that successfully changed the culture. And the CEO, the metric that the CEO used was uh, sales of company branded merchandise from the company store. Under the old regime, the employees had been embarrassed to work for the company and they would tear the logos off their uniforms. 
And so he actually tracked the number of T-shirts and hats and coffee mugs that were being sold. It's it's kind of trivial at one level, but I think I think you can I think you can measure culture. Um, you can be a little creative about it, or you can use some existing instruments. I, I like that merchandise indicator very much. I have to say uh, that's cool. Um, now, having you talked about um, culture and and I think also leadership that that is tremendously important for um, um, installing and, and, and keeping up a sustainable um, ambidextrous organization. What would you say is what needs a, a company needs to do to really implement and sustain such an ambidextrous organization, not for, for the short term, but for the long run and be successful yeah. with it? <clears throat> yeah. So, Manuel, that, that goes back to this notion of <clears throat> leadership commitment a strategy that legitimates why we're playing these multiple games. Uh, it, it requires that leaders understand the notion of alignment and congruence. That is the, the interplay of people and capabilities, metrics, structures, and processes and culture and understanding that the alignment of those that it takes to compete in a mature business is different so that the leader understands that these new businesses need the latitude, the freedom to be able to hire different types of people, to perhaps use different reward systems, to, to actually generate different cultures. And the leaders need to appreciate that and, and not only permit it, but encourage it. Oftentimes, I think what happens with some leaders is they grow up in a company, they're successful. And then when they become senior leaders, they want to use their experience, their success, and they want to say, this is the way to do it. And that typically does not permit different ways of doing it. So there's a kind of mindset on the part of the leader You know, to go back to Microsoft for just a minute, uh, Nadella used this notion of what is called a growth mindset. That is the, the idea that uh, we don't know it all. We want to learn it all. That, that what he wants is people who are curious, who are willing to experiment, who are willing to take some risks, not people who know exactly how things are done. So I think there's a, I think there's a mindset issue on the part of leaders that it takes to make this happen. You know, at the time we were spending a little uh, time with one of these German companies, it was clear that their leaders, uh, I mean, perhaps not clear, it seemed to us that their leaders had a particular way of thinking about what led to success. And that reflected their experience growing up in the company. And they did not, they were not uh, permissive, they did not provide sufficient room for other people to try different ways. Mm. So again, it just underscores the, the importance of senior leaders in this process. So I, I think with that, we are already coming to the 
end of our episode today and you maybe already know what this means so we will do our famous <laughs> sentence completion exercise okay. with you right. it means i will give you a sentence and you just complete the sentence right. so i will start with the first one the most critical success factor for reaching organizational ambidexterity is leadership unquestioned leadership <laughs> Period. <laughs> Nothing to add. <laughs> All right. The best thing about being a professor for management is? Getting to talk to people like you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. you know, the, I mean, being, being a professor is the world's best job because we, we get to spend time with people like yourselves and leaders and companies, but we also get to step back and to think and to, to deal with young students who are always sort of enthusiastic. So I, I can't think of a better job. Perfect. Sounds awesome. <laughs> okay. Then last but not least, the most valuable advice I teach my students is? So this is not a one word answer. Um, so I, I have been for the last 15 years, I teach a course in which we invite CEOs in and there's no speech and everything is held in confidence. So the students get to spend an hour and a half interacting with the, these CEOs. And so I've seen probably a hundred CEOs from around the world. And the one thing that comes through that is consistent across all these people is that not one of them had a plan that said, I'm going to graduate, I'm going to go here, and then I'm going to go there. They all, their careers unfolded. They took, they were given opportunities and they took opportunities. So my, the one thing that I tell the students, especially our MBAs who are graduating, is relax. You know, even if you go and have, find a job that you don't like, things will work out. So this notion of having to have a plan is, I think, not very helpful. Yeah, I think there's nothing more to add. <laughs> And with that. Um, thank you both. Thank you again for your was, participation was, and for being here. And let's accelerate. And we wish you a lovely day. And thanks for being here. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Bye. Thanks, Charles. Bye. Thank, thank you, you very much. Soon.